Good morning, everybody. I uh, specifically asked David Owen to read the scripture today uh, because I wanted a wise man to read the story of the wise men. Yeah. Uh, pastor David Owen has been a part of Ward Church. Now, get this. He was a pastor before he came to Ward Church. I'm only counting the Ward Church years, but he's been a pastor at Ward Church, Detroit, Livonia, Northville, for, get this, 54 years. Yeah. Yeah, incre- he's in better physical shape than I am, but he started at Ward Church about the time I was born. Really, don't let the hairline and waistline fool you. He has accumulated a lot of wisdom uh, over the years. This Advent season, a lot of us have been living with what's called the serenity prayer. And in week one of this series, we learned to pray, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And then in week two, we learned to pray, God, grant me the courage to change the things that I can And if you missed one or both of those messages, you can always catch up online. All of Ward Church messages are on the website. They're also all on your app right at your phone. But as powerful as those first two prayers are, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Grant me courage to change the things I can. As powerful as those first two prayers are, they can lead to a problem. How do I know the difference? And that's why the third part of this prayer is so uh, important. Uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, because sometimes it's hard to know. So when we talk about wisdom today, we are, as you may have anticipated, going to talk about the story of the wise men from the Christmas story. And we're going to look at some of the wise things the wise men did. And along the way this morning, we're going to pause and hear two stories from members of our church. And then I will invite you to make the same decision that the wise men did. That's where we're going this morning. And you understand, when I talk about uh, wise men, I mean to apply this both to men and women. Uh, Somebody wrote about how the story would have been different if the story had been about three wise women, and instead of three wise men, uh, they said, well, they would have asked for directions, arrived on time, helped to deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts. (laughs) Whole story would have been much better had it gone that way. In the Bible, they're not even called wise men, they are called magi. We'll talk about that term later. The Bible does not say there were three of them. The Bible does not specify a number. Uh, It doesn't use the words uh, wise men or kings, even though tradition often refers to them that way. But the magi, the, the, the wise men, as tradition calls them, are in this story for at least two reasons that I want to talk about today. They don't really belong in the story at so many levels, but I think they're here for at least two reasons. And the first one is that they embody a basic human, uh, a basic wisdom decision that every human being has to face once Jesus enters the world. They embody a basic wisdom decision that every human being has to make. 
And you heard their story read from David Owen this morning, but look at how it starts again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was what? Disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Why was King Herod disturbed? King Herod's title was King of the Jews. And he is not about to give up his title, his position, his power, his throne to anybody. To keep his throne secure, he even killed three of his own sons, one of his wives, the one he loved the most, and his mother-in-law. This is not the start of some bad joke. This is a matter of historical record. This was King Herod. There's a very stark contrast in the story. The wise men were looking for a king. Herod wanted to be king. And if you want to be king and somebody else, Jesus shows up and claims to be king, one of you has to yield. There can only be one king in everyone's life. There can only be one king, and Herod's decision is ours. Who will be king? Look how differently the Magi responded to Jesus. You heard it read this morning. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See how radically different their response was to Jesus than was Herod's. Herod was disturbed. That's the word the Bible used. The Magi were overjoyed. Herod felt threatened by Jesus. The Magi worshipped Jesus. Herod focused on what he might lose. The Magi focused on what they and on what the world might gain. Herod tried to stop Jesus from coming. The Magi welcomed him. And this is still a choice for us to make. Herod wanted to be in control. He did not want to give up his throne. And can we admit that we don't like to give up our throne either? We don't like to give up control. Uh, the big question today is, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Who is sitting on the throne of your life? This throne was loaned to me uh, from the folks at MJ Diamonds in Laurel Park Mall. Um, I, I was there for lunch last week in the mall, and I saw this magnificent display sitting outside, and I, uh, ooh, ah. <laughs> I went in and asked the clerk if I could borrow the throne and she said no she did not want to give up her throne and then I told her who I was and how I wanted to use it and she said well I suppose we could ask the family yes let's ask the family the family that owns and it turns out the family the family's heritage the family's lineage the family's grandmother comes from the little town of Bethlehem halfway around the world and the family is quite pleased that their prop is going to be used to tell the story of the babe of Bethlehem. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that cool? Now, a throne is not just a chair, is it? A throne is a place from which to command. 
It's a place from which to control. It's from a place from which to look impressive. I feel kind of powerful just sitting here. (laughs) Now, we don't have thrones that look like this anymore, but we still have them. It is still common language to talk about the seat of power. That's where this comes from. The person in charge is the chairman or the chairwoman or simply the chair. And everybody wants to be in the chair. There's a little Herod inside each one of us that resists the claim of a sovereign God to rule over my life. I want to rule. And this brings us to our very first story. I'd like to invite uh, Sean Spencer to come to the platform. Uh, Sean and his family have been a part of Ward Church for uh, a long time. And um, Sean's story of faith as it intersects with his business life uh, resonates so strongly with this part of the message. I asked Sean if he'd be willing to share uh, part of his story with us. I'll do this for you since you have. There you go. Um, please, uh, would you, you welcome Sean? To, uh... Thank you, everybody. Let me raise this up a little bit. Here while you speak. Uh... <laughs> Let me know what you'd like me to finish. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming today. Um, so God's will versus my will, putting God on the throne. And so I'm going to read this story just because I know I'm on the clock, as the leader of the chair has told me. Okay. <laughs> Growing up, I grew up in an upper-class Christian family and checked all the boxes each week, twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday. We were the poster-looking, church-going Christian family. Dad was a successful businessman and gave to his church. However, I learned how to be a vanilla Christian, how to use money to control and get what you want, and sadly, never truly understanding who God and Jesus really are. I had learned that God and Jesus were the judge, and Dad was the jury. I grew up in an abusive home in many ways, physically, emotionally, and verbally, I learned that dad was always right and he controlled all the cards. I learned that, I learned and saw what money can get you and how you can use it to control people and situations. Sadly, I never learned what it meant or how to have true blind faith in Jesus and how Jesus was with me in the good times and the bad. I didn't learn this until much later after my dad had passed away in April of 2007. I was taught how to react with control, not respect with thought of others' feelings. So my career path uh, after college, I graduated in May and was married in June of 94. I worked hard. My formula was to work hard, make money, so you could control, have comfort, and then have peace of mind. Sadly, um, I did know uh, that this was a false sense of comfort and peace of mind. I didn't learn that until later. I was checking all the boxes as I was taught growing up and going to church, twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday. I worked hard and saw early financial success, however, was never rooted in faith and aligned with a plan God would have for me. However, God was working on my heart and my mind, even behind the scenes. Thanks to some great churches I have been part of, I learned that Jesus would meet me where I was at, love me at the same time, I never knew that this was possible. This was not what I had experienced at home or that I had learned at the church I grew up at. The game-changing book for me was, yes, the Bible, but the Bible um, 
more importantly for me, is the Bible for Busy Dads New Testament. It walked me through the New Testament in an entire year. This helped me start to connect with Jesus in a friendship way. I was starting to learn that my dad, now gone, was not who I needed to focus on pleasing. It was Jesus that I needed to direct my focus and attention. I realized I need to focus on Jesus who responds to me with grace and kindness in all things. I started to learn about the importance and power of mental wellness. Psychotherapy is now a critical component on my life, of my life, and I go on a regular basis. It helps me take out the head trash in a productive and non-threatening way. I have, learned, I have learned that when you are mentally well, Jesus has the opportunity to put in an express lane between your heart and your mind to start the real transformation process. Jesus <laughs> is a true friend uh, that I can share anything with and, excuse me, And he's with me 24-7. This is what I have learned by reading the Bible. Um, is that Jesus loves me and he'll meet me where I'm at. <sighs> he's not a punishing judge, but he's a friend that I can always depend on in good times and bad, and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Sean, thank you. Thank you for your courage. So this is what wisdom does. Right, guys? Yep. All right, can you hear me? All right, oh, there I am, all right. This is what wisdom does. Wisdom comes to grip with who's on the throne. Who's going to control my life? And again, the story of Christmas, the, the, the magi are looking for a king. Herod wants to be king. But there is another reason I think the wise men are included in this story. They're a picture of God's heart for people who do not belong in the story. They're a picture of what grace can do. There are multiple reasons the Magi are unexpected and out of place in this story. First of all, the wise men aren't from Israel. They're foreigners from the east, likely Persia. Secondly, they're not Jewish. Uh, they don't follow the Torah. They don't go to temple. They don't worship the one true God. They're outsiders. They may not even have been particularly religious, at least not in the ways that we think of religious. In fact, they might have been into some things with which we would be most uncomfortable. They were into astrology. 
Now, I don't know if they read horoscopes like people do today or how their, what form their fortune telling took. And to be fair, their astrology was something more like our astronomy. These were scientists and scholars and learned people, but they also looked to the skies for answers in ways that would make most of us very uncomfortable. These guys were stranger than the strangest relative that you're going to see at Christmas next week. They were called magi. We get our word magic and magician from this word. They tried to tell the future. There was a famous story in the 1980s about a psychic astrologer who sued her doctor uh, for $988,000, true story, um, because she claims that the CAT scan that her doctor recommended her for, uh, she went to the CAT scan and somehow it destroyed her psychic ability. Now, it seems to me if she really were a psychic, she would have known, <laughs> right? She would have foreseen. These magi were not following the God that we know. They're into some odd stuff. They're looking for answers in the skies. And yet, and yet, and yet, God sends them a star. Right? They're into astrology. And God meets them where they are in the middle of a pagan, skeptical, uh, suspicious process and uses that to take them on a journey that they don't know where they're going and they end up with Jesus. This is so phenomenal. Right? These guys ethnically, religiously, historically, morally have no business in the story of Jesus except for this. The story of Jesus is now open to everybody. And they find that child and they bow their knee and they, they, they bend their bodies and they worship him. And it's interesting, and, and this is how it often works. I don't know why. Herod had all the benefits of religion and respectability. He had the scriptures. He had the temple. And yet he had murder in his heart. These guys had no scripture, no temple, and they had worship in their hearts. Very strange. When they see Jesus, they... They rejoice with exceedingly great joy because it turns out there is a God. And this God is not in the stars. He's right there in front of them, tangible, near, close, comes in humility. And I believe God still sends out the star to lead people to Jesus. God meets us where we are in ways we can understand and takes us on a quest that leads us to the manger. And then around the manger, we find this cast of characters that don't seem to belong together in any way, shape, or form except the Christmas child. They have found their way into the story of Jesus. And this brings us to our second story. I'd like to uh, invite Ashley Gray to come to the platform. Uh, you may know uh, Ashley's more ward famous husband, Terrence Gray, um, but Ashley is a great teacher and leader in her own right, and I've asked Ashley to share part of her story. Would you welcome her? Hi. Um, so there's been a thread throughout my life of not quite fitting in, not, um, not always making the mark exactly. My earliest memory was running for um, class president in fifth grade. <laughs> um, those memories that really stick with you all the way until you're 31. Uh, this is one. So I had so many friends and I had teachers supporting me. Um, even the 
the man that was facilitating the debate and where you give your speeches to kind of like, you know, tell the students how great you are and how, why you should be the president, um, had so much favor on me. I was at the beginning of the line because I was early and he said, no, go to the back because we want you to be the best. So go to the back, make your speech great so that you can win. Well, I ended up not winning. <laughs> um, and that was the beginning of, uh, a lot of disappointments um, that I would face. And it was very troubling for me because I thought, you know, I was like pretty well known, pretty popular, pretty, um, but it, I was always on the hinges of like, you're, we know you, but we don't really know you. <laughs> um, and you're always a little different. Um, it was the beginning of God orchestrating my life for God's glory alone. In middle school, I tried out for every single sport and didn't make any. I wanted to be a cheerleader. I could never make the team. I always made the basketball team because I was tall. And um, I dealt with other major things like racial identity. I went to a majority um, white populated high school and I'm half white, so I'm, I was pretty comfortable, but there was always a point where I saw differences. And not that they were bad, but they were there. And um, I didn't want to be different. I wanted to fit in. I was a high schooler. I'm not like the courageous high schoolers these days who are proud to be different. Um, my hair was different. My body was different. My skin was different. Um, in college, I actually made the cheerleading squad. Just ask God how this happened. Um, but I still deemed the I was still deemed the white cheerleader because I was lighter skinned and I went to a historically black university. So majority of the students there were African American. So I stuck out. So you see, I never could win. I wasn't white enough at my high school and I wasn't black enough at my college. And um, I definitely looked weird when I told people I wanted to go into ministry. Um, and, and I was a Christian and I wanted to live for the Lord. I started to stick out even more. Um, and then I had the audacity. Uh, I was not raised in an environment like Ward where you guys are so encouraging to women. Um, but I had the audacity to believe that I should have the same degree as uh, a man shepherding the church. And if I was going to be uh, shepherding women, I should have the same degree. Um, and that was the toughest time in my life in 2016, as far as my identity in Christ. I had thoughts like, does God love me? Does he love women? Um, because I'm not hearing a ton of it from the pulpit, and I never did growing up. So then I started to question myself in seminary, um, even though I knew that the Lord called me to do, uh, to do my MDiv. Um, I started to ask, do I belong in seminary? Am I wasting my supporters' money here? Um, and I had some, you know, controversy with some classmates who also didn't think that I belonged there. So while I was a consistent, there was a consistent thread of disappointment and not quite fitting out at times, I also had a golden thread following that same trajectory that was God being with me. Every time I cried myself to sleep for not being good enough or not fitting in enough, the Holy Spirit was there comforting me. Um, my mom shared the gospel with me when I was eight years old, and so I firmly believe that uh, Jesus was my Savior and that he was there for me at every stage of my life, and so um, he was a comforting um, companion for me during those times. So knowing the word also changed my life. Um, I was able to seek God and believe what God says about me and choose to believe that over my own insecurities. From knowing that I am made in the image of God, that I'm an image bearer in all my differences, 
So why should I feel the shame of reflecting a unique part of God's glory? I look at very different kinds of people that Jesus included in his story and his circle, and I realize that he recognized and dignified the ones that were often overlooked, marginalized, and just um, basically had a societal disadvantage for some reason. I look at how Jesus included women in his parables at a time when no other rabbi thought of women in illustrations, Jesus did. So, um, for example, when he would talk about um, just the ways, the ways in which you are a believer, ways in which you um, can come to know him, or how hard it is to get into the uh, kingdom of heaven, those illustrations only women probably would have understood more, or they would understand uh, a lot more than the men were. But he also did illustrations that men understood. But that was very rare for a rabbi to think about how to um, connect with women during that time. So I started learning about how Jesus was different than um, the men that I was discipled by growing up. Um, Jesus told the important news like, I'm the Messiah to a woman first in John 4, and he revealed the resurrection. He revealed his resurrection to Mary and Joanna and um, James, James's mother in the Gospels and sent uh, them with the first good news story. And it's Christmas, hello. He chose Mary to bear the savior of the world. And the Bible says in Matthew that she, she, was, she had favor with God and that's why he chose her. So how could I ever believe the lie that uh, I as a woman was less valuable and didn't belong in the building or God's kingdom um, just by those examples alone? But the list can go on and on about how God um, chooses to make women a part of his story and make people who are marginalized and disenfranchised a part of his story. Almost none of them are the people who you think should be the, the winner or the one that should belong. So, brothers and sisters, if you ever wondered if you belonged in the story of Jesus, if you're wondering now, the answer is yes. Um, Psalm 139 tells us that he knew, he knew us at our, in our unformed parts. He knew me, and he hasn't forgotten you. Um, Pastor Scott quoted instructions from God was fear not, like the most um, repeated was fear not. And, well, oftentimes that's also connected with the reassurance of God's presence, uh, that he is with you in the fear. So if you know the experience um, of feeling like you don't belong or you're in good company, like legends like Joseph and David and Daniel and basically every single woman in the Bible. <laughs> God saw each and every one of them and were created for a divine purpose. They are an integral part of the story, and that's why we're all here today. So ask God, who is going to, to be here next year because I was an integral part of their story? Another command God repeats throughout the entire Bible is remember and wait. Uh, I exhort you to remember God's heart for you and wait for the Lord to fulfill your desire to belong. He will, I promise. But even more importantly, God promises. Read this and you will see. Um, a great multitude in Revelation 7-9 says, After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation... You can tell I read my Bible. It's a little tattered. Okay, here we go. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could ever number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And before, behold, the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell to their faces before the throne and worshipped, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. So you see, one day we'll all be together wearing the same thing, saying the same thing forever and ever. So you will belong. Thank you. Yeah, I wish we had time to pass a microphone around the room today really, and hear the stories, and so many of you have stories of how you found your way into Jesus' story, or how you felt like you, you didn't see yourself in Jesus' story initially, and how you came to understand that. But in the time that remains, what I, what I really want to do is just call the question, who's going to be on the throne of your life in 2022 and, belong, and beyond? And this is a question, by the way, for religious and non-religious people, even those of us that are church-attending uh, Christians, uh, we don't like to give up this chair. Having Jesus sit in the throne for every aspect of our life is scary to even uh, the most regular church attendee. Who is it that's going to sit on the throne of your life? And I want to suggest that you are not a good option for that role. When, when I sit here... I, I, I get greedy, I get enslaved, I, I get trapped, I, I get lost. We need somebody else. We need Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives. As you've heard, we're going to kick off the new year with this series called Desperation, the, the Art of Desperation, and this 21-day prayer initiative. I'm really excited about that. And I've heard Terrence say before, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are desperate for God and know it. And there are those who are desperate for God and don't know it. We are desperate people. And the Bible has all kinds of lines like this that says, all have sinned and fall short. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. There is none righteous, not one. We're in the same desperate predicament. But here's the good news. The same Jesus who was born in a manger to communicate God's pursuing and humble love is the same Jesus who died on a cross to communicate God's extravagant forgiving grace. The same God born in a manger is the God who died on a cross. What Sean did, what Ashley did, you can do too. I, I, I humble myself, I listen to God, and then I do symbolically I, I, get, I get out of this chair and I invite Jesus to take his place in my life. I relinquish my throne to Jesus. And it's the most important decision a person can make and I want to call us to a moment. Would everybody bow your heads please and, and close your eyes for a moment. Um, and again, we'll just give you a moment. If, if, if you're in a place today where you're ready to give over your throne to Jesus, you, you can talk to God right now and you can say something like this, God, I acknowledge that I need you. I want a fresh start. 
I ask you, God, no, no, no resumes now, no trying to impress you now. Would you forgive me based on the love of Jesus who died on a cross for me? Would you come into my life and take it over? Take over my time and my behavior and my relationships, my life and my death. I want to be a follower of Jesus from this day forward. I'm going to ask everybody to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But if you uh, made a decision today, if you transferred the throne in your heart and mind today, I want to pray for you. So just as everyone's bowed, and I'd like to ask you if you made a decision to kind of raise your hand so I can see your hand and pray for you. Just lets me know how to pray for you. Thank you. I'll be praying for those of you with your hands in the air. Thank you. Yeah. Let's all pray together. God, you know every story. You see every heart. You know everybody in the room and everybody watching online and everybody listening by radio. And I believe you have sent a star of some kind to each of us to lead us to Jesus. Oh, God, give us eyes to see. We pray today for those who are hurting or grieving or lonely. For those for whom the holidays are difficult and we pray for those who have yet to find their place in the story of Jesus and I pray especially for those who raised their hands those who handed their life and will over to you thank you God with the presence and love of Jesus become as real to us as they were to those men on their knees 2,000 years ago This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. Amen.